0: Uh, If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Joel, because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And in just a moment, I'll read some scripture for you, but uh, I will start by leading us in a prayer. Lord God Almighty, we need you, and you are here, and we thank you for that. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, and make us aware of your presence. And we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, amen. So now that you're cozy and in the book of Joel, if you don't mind, I'm gonna ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm gonna read Joel uh, chapter two, verses 28 through 32. And this is what it says. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, you may be seated. So in May of 2000, I went to a conference for college-age Christians in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, And the conference was called One Day. And on that one day, my life changed forever because that's the day, May 20th of 2000, that I would point to that in a field among 50,000 other students, I knew for sure that the Lord was calling me to ministry. And um, it has, it was the beginning of a lot of other paradigm shifts for me and changes that I can still uh, draw a straight line to today. So when I learned that there would be another one day conference in 2003, I knew that I had to get there, even if it meant driving with two girls that I hardly knew. And so that's what I did. There were three of us in a car, and we didn't know each other, and it was awkward. But this one wasn't in Memphis. It was in Sherman, Texas. So we were in the car for about 10 hours together. And when we arrived to the conference, it was basically like Woodstock, but for Jesus. It was like the middle of just hundreds of acres of farmland. So there's no street lights or anything. So we get there in the middle of the night, and it's dark. And people greeted us at the gates and they've got their flashlights and they're giving us our wristbands and telling us where to go. And they basically said, you've got a long drive before you get to where you're going to camp, but we want you to prepare your heart and not just go in like goofy and like talking about whatever. And so they gave us a passage to read and I was sitting in the back seat. So I turned on the dome light and opened my Bible and I read this for uh, everyone in the In the car, I began, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. And I was getting excited and my voice was getting really intense. And then I kept reading, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And I was thinking, I was like really spirited in my reading of this and, and just speaking really intense. And I was like, I'm, I'm not getting what this has to do with this. And after about 10 seconds of utter uh, locust destruction, one of the girls was like, Are you sure you're reading the right passage? And I wasn't. Um, But that is my first and most enduring memory of reading Joel. So whenever I think of Joel, I think of Locust and I think of reading it out loud at 2 a.m. in the middle of a field in Texas. Uh, But hopefully after this morning, it'll be a bit more, uh, it'll make a bit more sense to you than it did to me that night. So, first, as always, I want to talk to you about. The historical context so we'll pull up our trusty rusty minor profits timeline and i'll just say if you find this timeline helpful we've got them printed in the lobby at the welcome table what will not be at all helpful at this point is the back of the timeline which has the preaching schedule on it uh because as much as i'd like to say that COVID is completely behind us this summer it has been very apparent that it's not in between sickness and exposure to sickness we've had to change the preaching schedule like six times so it's utter nonsense if you look at the preaching schedule Um, pastor chuck would love to be up here preaching on nahum this morning but he's not because he and his family has been very sick his wife Amy is still very, very sick, recovering after several days in the hospital. So there are many in our congregation who have been sick and still are sick. Um, So remember them in your prayers, especially remember the Barry family in your prayers right now. So we weren't even gonna preach on Joel. The first week I was like, I'll just say a little something about it the last week, but here I am preaching on Joel. So you'll see that Joel on our timeline was in the Southern Kingdom. Uh, which means it was in Judah. And sometimes Joel refers to Judah, sometimes he refers to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is like the main city in Judah where the temple is. So that's where he is geographically speaking. But you'll notice that Joel comes very late on the timeline, if you have good enough eyes to see that. And um, it comes after Israel had the schism, and there was the northern and southern kingdom. They're the southern kingdom. It also comes after the southern kingdom was taken into exile and defeated by Babylon, that little dip down in the bottom. And it comes even after that, after Persia is now in power, and the people of Judah have returned to to their home. They've returned to Jerusalem. uh, And What you'll notice also is that Joel has a question mark after it, and that's because we can't be sure the date of Joel, it's actually the prophet that is the most difficult to place chronologically. Because Joel doesn't mention a king, he doesn't mention a specific event or a specific world power that we can kind of like connect with any other thing that would help us to know the historical context. But Joel does talk about priests and he talks about temples. And we know that the temple was destroyed when they were sent into exile. So it's most likely that Joel was writing after they had returned from exile and had rebuilt the temple, but they no longer had a king. and we can also place Joel later because he quotes from a lot of the other prophets. He quotes from Amos, Nahum, Isaiah, Ezekiel, even uh, Exodus. So we know that Joel was immersed in scripture and he had an understanding of God's judgment, but he also knew from reading the prophets that there was always hope that came with judgment. And so like in all of the other prophets, we're gonna see that there's Joe judgment and there's also hope in Joel and also like many of the other prophets, judgment is identified as the day of the Lord. And we've said that the day of the Lord can refer to separate acts of judgment through a natural disaster or through warfare or something like that, but it can also refer to the final judgment on the last day. And Joel speaks about the day of the Lord in both ways, and so we'll, we'll get into that, but uh, the first chapter of Joel recounts a recent day of the Lord, a recent day of judgment that was a plague of locusts that he and the other inhabitants of Judah had endured. So in, in verse four, it goes into great detail. It's what I was reading in the car, that weird night that was supposed to stir us up. But what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, that that passage tells us there was wave after wave after wave of locust swarms. And it would be nice if Joel told us more about when this happened or some more specific details so that we could date it because it might corroborate with another people group's account. But Joel doesn't say precisely what locust plague he's talking about because his audience had just lived through it. He didn't need to be specific. It would be like, if I were talking and I mentioned the pandemic, you wouldn't be like, whoa, we talking bubonic plague? Like, which, which pandemic are we talking about here? We're, you've just lived through it, so I can just say the pandemic. And it's the same with this locust plague. Um, so let's talk about locusts then. Uh, these types of locusts were likely a type of locust called desert locust, And I think we have a photo of one of those. So um, they are anywhere from half an inch to three inches long. And I want you to take this in. A swarm of desert locusts can include as many as 80 million locusts in half a square mile. And a swarm can travel more than 80 miles a day. So you think about 80 million locusts traveling 80 miles a day, and they destroy everything they come in contact to. And uh, in one day, a swarm eats as many as 2,500 human beings. So they just leave a wake of destruction. And the thing is, these still happen. These swarms of desert locusts still come. In fact, if you're curious what a dude in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt would look like in a locust swarm, I got you covered. That's what it looks like. And that was last year. So these still happen, and yet the language in Joel 1 lets us know this was far worse than any locust plague that they had ever had. Joel likens the locust to an invading army, and he details the damage that they did. In verse 7, he says, the locust army has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. And I just want to point out, it's in first person. Joel lived through this. He was affected by this. In verse 10, Joel says that the fields are destroyed and the grain is destroyed. And for the bulk of the first chapter, Joel describes the ripple effect that this had on Judah. The fields and trees are gone, so there's no wine, there's no oil, there's no crops. Joel tells us that grain offerings and the drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord, which means that the priest can't carry out the ordinances that they're supposed to in the worship of the Lord. And I want you to remember what it felt like last year when it seemed like everything was falling apart and we couldn't even meet here together. Our inclination was we should probably be together, we should seek God together, and we couldn't even do that. That's similar to what they were going through without the grain and the oil and the wine that they needed for offerings. since there was no grain, and no pasture, they couldn't feed their livestock. Verse 18 talks about even the livestock were crying out. With no livestock and no crops, it means no food. And if you read chapter one, you'll see that Joel repeats the phrase dried up a lot. The vine, the trees, the grain, the wine have all dried up. Verse 12 even says that their gladness had dried up. And since everything was so dry, we learn in verses 18 and 19, that fires have broken out. And the few things that weren't devoured by the locusts were devoured by the fire. And if that weren't enough, there are droughts and now their brooks are dried up, so there's no water. This was total devastation. And I want you to pay attention to what Joel's response to all this devastation was in verse 13 and 14. It was a call to action, but it wasn't like, let's get some humanitarian NGOs in here. Let's get some low-interest loans set up. Let's appeal for foreign aid. Look at what Joel says. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. In your Bible, it probably says something like a call to repentance as the subject heading for this, but you'll notice that that word isn't anywhere in this passage. And these calls to actions, all of these actions were really expressions of mourning. Throughout scripture, we see people mourning in sackcloth, tearing their clothes, putting ashes on their head. And these were outward expressions of internal grief and turmoil. And as a side note, I would just say, in our culture, we don't have anything like that. And so we generally tend to act like everything's okay. And that's not a healthy way to mourn. But uh, these outward expressions of mourning weren't unique to Judah because If you look at Egyptian art, you can see women pouring ashes on their head. It's uh, what you would have expected them to do if an Egyptian had lost a loved one or if uh, Babylon had experienced a horrible earthquake that took life. But Joel was calling them to something more than just a show of their discontent. Because if the people of God are hit with a locust plague This would definitely call to their mind the eighth plague on Egypt in Exodus, when God punished Egypt. Except this time God's hand wasn't against their enemies, it was against his own people. So Joel calls for the people to gather, to lament, to fast, and to cry out to God corporately. And because, after all this, there's so much horror. They're exhausted. They're fearful. But the scariest thing is verse 15 that says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and his destruction from the almighty, it comes. In other words, destruction is coming. This isn't it. It's not even here yet. He's talking about a day of the Lord. And in chapter two, Joel expounds on this future day of the Lord. So read with me verses one and two. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So the day of the Lord does not sound like good news for Judah. And it's interesting because the way that Joel describes the day of the Lord is very similar to the way Moses describes the locust plague in Exodus 10. He talks about darkness, and uses a lot of the imagery that Joel uses about locusts. But what felt most significant to me is Moses said, such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been before, nor ever will be again. And we just saw that Joel says, "Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. So if they're both talking about locusts, they can't both be telling the truth, right? They can't both be talking about a locust plague if they're both the worst, and it's because they're not. See, in chapter one, Joel talked about the locust swarm as if they were an invading army. And in chapter two, Joel is talking about an invading army as if it were a locust swarm. And if you read on, it the next several verses go on to talk about the utter destruction that this army is gonna bring, basically saying, You thought the locusts destroyed your place? Wait until you see what this army does. And then verse 11 identifies the army and it's not the Persian army or the Babylonian army or the Assyrian army, it's the Lord's army. In other words, the great day of the Lord is a day of judgment that the Lord himself will bring on Judah, but As with all the prophets that we've looked at before this, there's no judgment without hope. And so up until now, we've been hearing Joel's own voice, his first-person perspective. But in verse 12 of chapter 2, the Lord himself speaks. And listen to what he says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent. The Lord says, return to me, which means that His people have left. And this call to return, the word in Hebrew is shuv, It is the thread that ties all of the prophets together. Return. The Lord does call for outward expressions of repentance like weeping and fasting, but he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. He's calling his people to something more than an outward show. And he's looking for true brokenness in his people. And then the voice switches from the Lord talking about himself to Joel, who himself calls Judah to return. And as his basis for doing this, he quotes Exodus 34 and says, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's probably familiar to you because it's quoted by the psalmist. It's quoted by Jonah. It's quoted again and again. But the first time we see it is in Exodus 34. And it's beautiful what the Lord says about himself to Moses. We can't say that God is not a God of wrath because he is, but even his wrath and judgment are driven by love. It's the discipline of a loving father. And I think it's incredibly significant that Joel quotes this passage. There are many passages about the goodness and the steadfast love of the Lord, but he chooses this one because this was God's response to Moses when Moses cried out on behalf of Israel because they had built a golden calf and worshiped it. So here's another prophet speaking these words to Israel again, to the Lord's people who have broken his covenant. Do you see that? that this is what the Lord says about Himself even after some of the worst idolatry that we can imagine. After they repent, this is what He says about Himself. But if we look at a natural disaster that devastated a nation and wrecked its economy, then it's not hard for us to see some connections to our current situation with COVID. And if we know that the locust plague on Judah was a divine act of judgment, then we have to wonder, is COVID an act of God's judgment on us? Have you wondered that? Is COVID an act of God's judgment on us? And my honest answer is, I'm not sure. I'm gonna share my view on this, but more than giving my opinions on what I think this is, I wanna look at what God is clear on in scripture. First, I wanna point out that every instance of suffering is not divine punishment. If we look at the Old Testament, we can look at Job. He was called blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet, he had horrible, heartbreaking things that happened to him but God had purposes that Job knew nothing about. And in John chapter nine, Jesus and his disciples encountered a man who was born blind. And and it says his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's a sense in which All suffering is a result of sin, Uh, because if sin had never entered into creation, we wouldn't suffer. So sin is both a condition that we're born into, but sin is also individual acts of disobedience to God. But we can't assume that if a person or a group of people has something hard happen to them, that this is necessarily divine judgment. If you think of God's own people, Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and there's nothing that would lead us to believe it was because of their disobedience. God avenged them and redeemed them, but it doesn't seem that their slavery was a divine punishment. We don't serve a God of karma. I think that's what we need to keep in mind. We don't serve a God of karma who repays us hardship every time we do something wrong because that wouldn't be good news at all that's no gospel at all you do something wrong god's going to do something bad to you as moses and joel both said we have a heavenly father who is gracious and merciful and yet we also know from scripture that there are also consequences for our sin romans 1 talks about the debilitating effects of suppressing the truth And denying God. And it's not just something that comes in the afterlife, it's something that happens in this life. He talks about how those who do this become fools and are given over to their sinful desires. And then in Deuteronomy 28, there are 53 verses that detail curses for breaking God's commands. But these aren't to those people out there, these are to God's own people. And one of the curses, for breaking God's commands is that locust will consume your crops. And another is that the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever. And this whole section of curses for breaking the covenant starts this way. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you And overtake you are any of you feeling good about your ability to keep all of God's commands of course not because none of us can perfectly keep the covenant and so we rightfully deserve all the curses but this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news If we read Galatians 3.13, it tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you see that? Christ became the curse that we deserve. The good news is that the covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and the new covenant is in his blood, which was shed for all of those who hope in him. So in short, I don't think generally that we can look at all suffering in the world and see it as an act of divine judgment. And I would say even in Joel's day, there were probably faithful among him who were wondering, is this this just a horrible thing that happened or is this judgment? But God sent a prophet to say, let me tell you exactly what this is and call you to repentance. But it's interesting because Hebrews one tells us that God spoke to us through prophets prophets in former times, but now who does he speak to us through? He speaks to us through Jesus. And the message of Christ is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So does this mean then that God never brings judgment on his people or on the nations? No, it does not. And we know for sure from Scripture that there will be a great day of the Lord when Jesus confronts all evil and brings true justice. And when you read about real justice, it's not just a descriptive word. It's not an act. Justice is an actual characteristic of God. And there's two different Hebrew words for justice. And one kind of has the legal judge kind of uh, feel to it, like, He's gonna be just in his judgments and rule, but there's also this other word that's used, and sometimes it's called righteousness, but it has the idea of making things right. And Jesus is gonna exercise justice in both of those ways, being a just judge, but also making things right. And I wanna make it clear that I am not saying that we don't need to bother with repentance. I don't look at Joel's charge to Judah and think, that was the Old Testament, we're living under the new covenant, so we don't really have to do that anymore. In fact, I would say everything that exists in time and space is a call to repentance because it's all pointing toward Jesus Christ. And that word repent simply means turn. If I'm trying to get somewhere on my own and I stubbornly am like, I know where I'm going and we're not getting there, my wife's like, let's just look at our phones. And it says, you need to be going east and you're going west. The proper response is admit that I'm wrong, humble myself and turn and follow the directions. That's what repentance is. And when Jesus started preaching, his message was repent and believe. If you wanna know what it takes to become a Christian, it's not Bible knowledge, it's not take this class, it's not jump through these hoops, it's repent and believe. And that's always the call to every single person. And for some of us, it's like Joel's call to return, come back to me and I need to hear this multiple times a day and I need to heed this multiple times a day. But for others, the call to repent and believe means to turn from trying to do things your own way and believe in Jesus for the very first time. But everything that exists is a loving call from a good father to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Not because Christ is full of himself and he just needs all the attention, but because we are empty and lost apart from Christ And in his love, God points us toward our only hope, the thing that we need the most. So if we could definitively know one way or another that uh, the COVID pandemic is a divine judgment or it's not, I don't think that the result would be that much different either way. Because look at what it has done. It's exposed our great need for Jesus. It has exposed our great need for one another It's shown us that our wealth and our status and our power can't save us or the ones that we love. And it's shown us that as much as we grasp for control, we ultimately can't control that much. And I I do not think that God calls a bad thing good, because right now there are people in our midst reeling from this disease. There are people who have lost people that they have loved. And I am not trying to just sprinkle some syrup on this and say, it's okay, God's good. God suffers with us and he does not call a bad thing good. But we do know that Christ is a redeemer and he works all things, even a pandemic, even a locust plague for good. And it seems that that is what happened in Joel, that it worked. The locust plague actually worked because after the threat of the impending army and the Lord's call to return, Joel 2, 18 says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. It's beautiful the Lord begins to list all the ways that he will restore the things that were lost in the plague. And this shows us that the Lord's heart for his people and the purpose of his discipline is for our good. And then the Lord's focus shifts to a future day. And the odd thing is that future day for us took place about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Shortly after Jesus had been crucified and rose again three days later and appeared to his followers for 40 days and then ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. Shortly after this, his followers were gathered together in a room and they heard a wind from heaven that filled the room and fire appeared and rested on every one of them and every one of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to proclaim the gospel in languages that they didn't know, so that people from other nations and tongues could understand. And I don't know if you get it, but it's this beautiful symbolic image of what Jesus was beginning to do through his church. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. But skeptics accused them of being drunk, and I want you to listen to Apostle, the Apostle Peter's response. He said, These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which meant morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The Holy Spirit comes, and Peter immediately connects dots and goes to the prophet Joel. And he begins quoting from Joel chapter 2, saying... And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he continues to quote from Joel, and he ends by saying, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's another man of God calling the world to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, if you said Lord, that was your way of saying the personal divine name of God, Yahweh. But now when Peter says, call upon the name of the Lord, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, the spirit of God was only in the temple. There were a few people at a few points who got to experience having the spirit of God, but it was always a king or a prophet and now Joel is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone, even servants, not just the kings, not just the prophets. And in the final chapter of Joel, we get a picture of the great day of the Lord, the final judgment when God will judge all mankind. And it's a day of wrath and destruction for the nations who scoffed at God and abused his children. I imagine it was almost exciting for Judah hearing about it after they had repented and after the Lord had restored their fortunes because it goes through this litany of people who had abused them. And it says they sold their children into slavery and they did all these horrible things. And you see like, dad's gonna take care of this. But listen to what it means to those who seek him. It says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So the very thing that the nation should fear is the thing that keeps the people of God safe. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. God's people will be holy. And he doesn't say that our sin will be tolerated. He says we will be holy, righteous, sinless, perfect. And this only makes sense if Christ Jesus cleanses and makes us holy and enables us by his spirit to be holy, but shy of the Holy Spirit, we will always fall away. Now, I want to sum up Joel by just showing you the pattern that emerges over these three chapters. In chapter one, there's a past day of the Lord, that locust plague, in which God judged his people, and proper, the proper response to this is repentance. In chapter two, There's a warning of a day of the Lord for those who fail to seek God, and it's gonna come in the form of a massive army of the Lord. And the proper response to this is repentance. And in chapter three, Joel looks to the ultimate day of the Lord when Christ will return and confront all evil and make all things new. And the proper response is repentance. When we are in the midst of suffering, it is easy for us to look around and think, I can't see anything good. And so we either say, there must be no God, or we say, if there is a God, he must not be good, because how would he let these things happen? And the fact is, It's a mystery, we can't know all that there is to know about God, but we can know God. God knows the number of hairs on your head and he knows everything that he need, that you need. However, you are hurting right now, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, he knows it and there's no promise in scripture That says, if you just seek Jesus, everything's gonna be okay. In fact, Jesus told his followers, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. God knows what we need. And so he points us to what we ultimately need. And sometimes, even in the suffering and in the hard things, We wake up with this vital awareness. I can't do this on my own. God, I can't do this without you. And I don't know if there's any better gift this side of heaven. We need the spirit of God. And the good news of the gospel is it is ours if we repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. So let me close by the Lord's own words to his people. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. When we are unable to see anything lovable in ourselves or when we think that we are more lovable than anyone else and we utterly ignore you and those around us, you are steadfast and your love is steadfast. And we need you every hour Lord, would you please, in the name of Jesus, bring comfort and healing and hope to those in our family who are hurting. And rather than questioning you and your goodness, may we know and believe, even when we can't see, that you are good and that you love us. And may it constantly draw us back to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name, amen.